Good morning and welcome to Glendale Christian Church. My name is Andrew. I'm the preacher here at GCC, and I'm very grateful that you've decided to worship with us today as we continue our series on mountains and the divine encounters that take place there. One of the great things about a divine encounter that happens on a mountain is oftentimes the clarifying nature of what is disclosed. God loves to disclose important things on the mountain, and we need some clarification from time to time, because Christianity can be confusing. There are times when people throw their hands up in despair thinking, I just don't know what I'm supposed to do. In part, because you've heard preachers say things like this. Nothing you do can get you saved. This is a true statement. You've also heard preachers say things like this. There is nothing you can do once saved that can separate you from the love of God in Jesus Christ. This is entirely true. You've also heard preachers say things like this. Jesus himself says, do not call me Lord, Lord, and then fail to do what I say. This is also true. This leads to a little bit of confusion for the non-believer. This leads to vexation even for the believer. For there is a question that many, many people have asked, and it's one that I seek to answer today. What role do I play in salvation? What role do my actions play in my salvation? How involved am I actually in it? What am I supposed to do? I hear preachers tell me to do certain things as if these are requirements of being right with God. But at the same time, I hear preachers say things like, there is nothing you can do to make you right with God. What is it that I am supposed to do What is my level of involvement? I know that it's God at work, but I am still involved somehow. Yes, you are. And today, we will hear from the words of the Lord Jesus himself as he sits atop a mountain and as he explains what is going to transpire. What is going to happen? And if we truly have eyes to see and ears to hear and minds to understand and hearts to receive, I believe that the words of Jesus will be very encouraging for you this morning. The words that Jesus Christ will speak come from the Mount of Olives. The Mount of Olives is the easternmost portion of the city of Jerusalem in modern-day Israel. It is the capital of Israel, the city of Jerusalem, and the Mount of Olives marks out the easternmost boundary Now, Jerusalem is a beautiful, thriving, bustling metropolis of a city, and as soon as you cross east, towards the east, past the Mount of Olives, oh, it doesn't look like a city anymore at all. It's a bunch of sheep. It's a bunch of pasture. It's like green from here till Jericho. Well, it starts to get a little bit brown along the way, but there's nothing There's nothing. It is literally the edge. And as you're coming from the east, from Jericho, and you go on the highway past the Mount of Olives, as soon as you do, you see a sprawling modern city. It is a remarkable thing, for it's like being catapulted 3,000 years into the future. And those of us who went to the Holy Land earlier this year 
you know exactly what I'm talking about. Jesus did a lot on this mountain. This mountain is beautiful. It's dotted with all kinds of modern churches now. But if you look carefully at the picture, to the very right hand of the screen, you see a slope of the mountain that looks like stones. Here's another picture of it. You see a little bit of stone off to the far right and off to the left. You see all kinds of trees. And down towards the bottom, you see what looks to be a grove. And your eyes do not deceive you. That is exactly what you're looking at. Let's first look at the significance of those stones. They are not just regular stones. They are, in fact, gravestones. The side of the Mount of Olives is a graveyard. The most expensive burial plots on planet Earth. You cannot afford to be buried there. Maybe if we accumulated the total wealth, we could get a grave there. It is crazy expensive, Because there are people who are willing to pay exorbitant sums of money to be buried on the slope of the Mount of Olives facing Jerusalem because, as good Jews, they've read Zechariah 14 and they know that the Messiah will come, Yahweh in the flesh will emerge and he will stand on the Mount of Olives. It will, in fact, separate and he will judge all people. And they want to be there First, oh, it's expensive. It is crazy expensive. And as you look through Jerusalem, it's an easy way to identify which is the Mount of Olives. It's a little bit disorienting when you're there at first because there are so many places of significance. But as you pan the horizon, as you see the panoramic view of the city, you can always pick out the Mount of Olives because along the Kidron Valley is this huge graveyard. Now, also on the mountain is Gethsemane, the Garden of Gethsemane. If you start at the top of the Mount of Olives and you descend a little bit towards the bottom and a little bit towards the right as you head towards Jerusalem a little bit north, you come to the Garden of Gethsemane. Yes, the very place where our Lord said to the Father in heaven, not my will be done, but your will be done. The same place the night before Jesus died for our sins, he went and cried tears of blood. This is the place Jesus wept. This is the place Jesus was overcome by emotion on the Mount of Olives. And if you go back to the top of the Mount of Olives, unlike Oklahoma where the wind goes whipping through the plains, the wind goes blowing up the hill, up the Mount of Olives. I know from personal experience how windy it can be at the top of the Mount of Olives. That's, that's me there and my hair is normally very together. Whoosh, straight back, straight back. The wind was going. It was cold that day. It was a few weeks before Easter. Oh, what a great time to visit. And I stood on top of the Mount of Olives, the same place Jesus stood, and I preached the words that Jesus preached there 2,000 years ago, and there are many honors that I have had in my life. Few could ever equal that honor. Perhaps today, the Lord will return. The view from the top of the Mount of Olives is glorious. For as you turn around, and you might be able to see a little bit behind me, but the camera is angled one way. If you swing the camera around just a little bit and you look over, this is what you see. This is what you see from the top of the Mount of Olives. You see the old city of Jerusalem. You see that gold dome that used to be a church built by the Crusaders, and now it is a holy site for Islam. Now it is an abomination, and yet this temple mount is what you see. You see skyscrapers, and you see cranes in the background, and you see the slope leading up to the temple mount, the Kidron Valley, 
is what you're overlooking. This is not what Jesus would have seen. Jesus would have seen, oh, some of the things would have remained very unchanged, but his view would have been slightly different. There would have been no skyscrapers. There would have been no cranes. The tallest thing that he would have seen is the temple building. The temple and all the surrounding buildings. You see in the middle of the temple mount this incredible, beautiful temple. This was the second temple built. The first temple built by Solomon was destroyed in the year 586 BC. It was reconstituted in the year 516 BC, and there were lots of additional projects being done. Herod the Great started a lot of them before Jesus was ever even born incarnate, and they weren't finished until about the year 60 A.D., Now, Jesus saw almost the whole thing completed, and Jesus overlooked this mountain, or from this mountain, the Mount of Olives, and he saw the temple. Jesus went into the temple a lot, and in fact, the chapter before the one we will look at today, Jesus is in the temple area, and he has some serious tussles with the Pharisees, the teachers of the law, and those who are ready to kill him. This is only a few days before Jesus dies. After all, he has revealed his nature on the Mount of Transfiguration, and he has had a beeline to the cross ever since. It is now straight south to Jerusalem, straight south to the cross, straight south to the resurrection. Jesus is on a mission. But before he completes that mission, before he goes to Mount Moriah, the Temple Mount, the same place that Abraham was about to sacrifice Isaac, but the Father in heaven said, no, no, I'll sacrifice my own son there. Jesus looked at the Mount of Moriah, the same place that he would die in a few days' time from the perspective of the Mount of Olives, knowing what he had just done. And what he had just done was punch every Pharisee in the nose, spiritually speaking. Jesus laid out in Matthew 23 a series of seven woes to the Pharisees, woes to the teachers of the law, those who are in power. And he called out the hypocrisy that he saw. He said, I am sick and tired of the hypocrites claiming to do the work of God. You'll work so hard to get one convert and yet you'll lead that person straight to hell. I am so sick and tired of the Pharisees. Woe to you, who are so concerned with the sins of others, but pay no attention to the sins of self. Woe to you who are beautifully adorned with deeds on the outside, but are dead on the inside. Whitewashed tombs you are. Dead bones are on the inside, even though it looks nice and pretty on the outside. And Jesus throws down a very serious gauntlet. And the people are ready to kill him dead. Not yet. Jesus leads his disciples out of Jerusalem. And as he's walking out of Jerusalem, this is what's recorded in Matthew 24, verses 1 and 2. As Jesus left the temple and was walking along, his disciples came up to him to call his attention to its buildings. Do you see all these things? Jesus asked. Truly, I tell you, Not one stone will be here. Here will be left on another. Every one will be thrown down. Now this does not sound like anything particularly special to the Western 21st century mind. But this was a declaration of destruction. Jesus was not merely predicting the fall of the temple. Jesus was in no uncertain terms claiming 
unto himself apocalyptic titles and declaring the end of the age. And the disciples knew exactly what he was saying. Steeped in the Old Testament as they were, familiar with the Old Testament had they become because of the teachings of the Lord Jesus himself, they knew that when he said, consider its buildings, none of the stones that you see will be left on one another, all of them will be thrown down. They knew that he was throwing down a gauntlet. They knew that he was declaring, that's it, what is about to come is the end. They knew exactly what he meant. And they wanted to find out more. But Jesus was on his way. He left the southernmost steps from the Temple Mount and he walked down south during these steps, the southernmost steps. And then he turned east, crossing the Kidron Valley, weaving his way through past the Garden of Gethsemane and he started to ascend the Mount of Olives. And when he got to the top, the very next verse, the disciples had caught up with him. And Matthew records in chapter 24, verse 3, Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives. The disciples came to him privately saying, tell us, when will this happen? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? The disciples knew exactly what Jesus was talking about, and so they ask a tripartite question. When will these things happen? They're wanting to know when the destruction of the temple will come about, but more importantly, they're wondering when his coming will come about. They weren't concerned about his coming. He had already come to Jerusalem. He had already paraded through. The people had already praised and worshipped him. They'd already shouted, Hosanna. They knew what was happening They knew what was happening. They weren't talking about his first coming. They were talking about his second coming. When are you coming back, Jesus? Because this building will not go down until you come back, or so they thought. What will be the sign of your coming? They knew that he was claiming to be the Messiah, which is Hebrew for Christ, which is Greek for the anointed one, which is English for God's chosen vessel of salvation. Yahweh saves They wanted to know. And that third question hinted at the apocalyptic nature of Jesus' ministry. What will be the signs of the end of the age? For they knew that the end of the age would be marked by destruction and the change. And in fact, that age did end. The age in which Jesus lived during his incarnate body is over. And a new age has come. The end of that age has come and gone and we are now in the midst of the end times. And that's a scary phrase for a lot of people because you think what's going to happen is going to be weird next. But it doesn't have to be weird. It doesn't have to be weird. It is confusing, but it does not have to be weird. We are in the end times. We are in the last days. We are in the final age of earth. And it started with the death, burial, resurrection, ascension of, the, ascension of Jesus, and the coming of the Holy Spirit. And since then, the corner has been turned. And the final age has begun. The age that was is no more. We are in the latter days. It has lasted for a long time, yes. But there will be no more ages. This age will end when the Lord returns. And Jesus began to explain to his guys what it would be like like for phase one, and phase one was the destruction of the temple. Now, 40 years before the destruction of the temple, Jesus is sitting on the Mount of Olives, and he's describing how Rome will surround Jerusalem and destroy it, and it was destroyed, and it will be awful, and there will be bloodlust, and there will be death, and there will be murder, and there will be all kinds of wailing, the likes of which has never been equaled 
And so some people wonder, well, Jesus couldn't be talking about the destruction of the temple. I mean, didn't worse things happen to the Jews? No, actually. What about the Holocaust? I mean, did six million Jews get gassed in the year 70 AD? No, they didn't. They didn't. The Holocaust was certainly more voluminous in number of death and in destruction, but it was not more impactful than what happened in 70 AD. In 70 AD, the temple was destroyed and not one stone was left upon another. And the entire nation of Israel was almost wiped out. The entire Hebrew way was almost destroyed. If not for those few who remembered the words of Jesus and fled to Jamnia, there would be no Israel. There would be no Hebrew people. Yes, many Jews were sacrificed during the Holocaust, but no Jews have ever sacrificed since 70 AD. The temple is gone, and not a single Jew has ever made a sacrifice since then. Their entire religious way of life has been destroyed and eviscerated because of what happened in 70 AD. They cannot do what they think God wants them to do. They are incapable of it. And so even though many Jews were sacrificed for the bloodlust of evil, no Jew has sacrificed since 70 AD. Even though many Jews were sacrificed because good men did nothing, no Jews have ever sacrificed since 70 AD. Even though many Jews were sacrificed because there are only a few and far between who will go and do what is necessary, no Jew has ever sacrificed since the year 70 AD. It ruined everything, and Jesus was just getting started. It's not just the destruction of the temple, but it is that second question. What is the sign of your coming? What will your coming be like, Jesus? And a little bit later in that same chapter, in verse 30 of chapter 24, Jesus himself says, the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky, and then all the tribes of the land will mourn when they see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory, and he will send his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds, from one end of the heavens to the other. And Jesus reasserts his favorite title of divinity, the Son of Man. Now, this is an allusion to what Daniel prophesies in Daniel chapter 7, verse 14, when he sees in a vision one who's like the Son of Man, the Ancient of Days who comes to earth. The Son of Man is not Jesus saying, I have a human nature, and the Son of God means I have a divine nature. The Son of Man is a claim of divinity. It is an Old Testament claim from Daniel that Yahweh himself will show up in the flesh someday and Jesus is saying, that day is now. I am the Son of Man. It is his number one self-referential title in the entire Gospels and he is asserting his divinity. No wonder so many of the people wanted to throw rocks at his head and kill him. He claims to be God every time he calls himself the Son of Man. And when the Son of Man comes... Everyone will mourn because of him. Why would they mourn because Jesus is coming? Because he will come to judge. He will come to judge. And so what sort of people ought you to be? Well, he'll say in Matthew 24, verse 44, you don't know when I'm coming back. Don't even guess. What sort of people ought you to be? Prepared. That's the sort of people you ought to be. Perhaps today, Jesus returns. Which is why so many of you have your perhaps today sign with Matthew 24, 44 and Titus 2, 12 and 13. Well, we wait for the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, eager to redeem a people for himself to do what is good. Yes, perhaps today the Lord will come. 
And so Jesus spends the rest of chapter 24 and the beginning of chapter 25 explaining again and again and again how people should be ready. And he gives parable after parable, explanation after explanation, telling the people that they should be ready for his imminent return. But then he gets to the end of what is known as the Olivet Discourse. It's known as the Olivet Discourse because it is an extended discursive teaching by the Lord Jesus comprising the entirety of Matthew 24 and Matthew 25. And it's one of the longest teaching sections in the entire gospel, and it is probably the most confusing. But I can sum it up for you in two words. Be ready. Be ready. He's coming back. And Jesus declares in chapter 25 of Matthew... Verse 31 through 33, when the Son of Man comes in glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him. He will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. And with this, Jesus explains why the people will mourn because he's coming to judge. And he's going to separate everybody. Just like A shepherd would separate sheep and goats. The Son of Man will come in glory. He's already revealed that glory to three. But when he comes again, he will not reveal that glory to a mere three. He will reveal that glory to all who live. And all will see his glory. And all will see this glorious throne at which he sits. And the king will start to judge. And make no doubt about it, Jesus is the king who does the judging. He says in the very next verse, Then the king, speaking of himself, will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance. The kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? The king will reply, truly, I tell you, whatever you did for the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. Actions are certainly involved. Then, The king will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, and you did not invite me in. I needed clothes, and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison, and you did not look after me. They also will answer, Lord, When did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or needing clothes or sick or in prison and did not help you? He will reply, truly, I tell you, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. Then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. When you stand before the judgment seat of Christ and he will sit on his throne and he will judge all, 
When you stand before Christ at his judgment seat, he will judge you for the deeds done in the body, whether good or bad. Now that sounds scary, but it does not need to be scary. It does not need to be scary for the believer at all. In fact, I long for judgment. Oh, that it would happen today. Perhaps today the Lord shall return. And I look forward to it. How can a person go from being fearful of the judgment to come to gloriously and confidently hopeful for the judgment to come, knowing exactly what the results will be? Well, the Bible tells us exactly how it can happen. Exactly how it can happen. And it's your involvement. You are involved. The king will most assuredly judge you based on your actions. You will be judged for what you do in the body, whether good or bad. That is what Paul says in 2 Corinthians. Yes, you will be judged by Jesus for what you have done in your deeds in the body. And yet, what you do in the body can never make you right with God. There's something else that makes you right with God that leads to all of these actions. And the thing that makes you right with God is accepting his grace by faith. You must place your faith in God. You must place your faith in Jesus. You must place your faith in the gospel. Faith involves head, heart, and hands. Faith involves belief, trust, and loving obedience. Faith involves a knowledge an intellectual knowledge of what is true, a heartfelt belief and trust in who Jesus is, and a willingness to act upon that. Faith involves all three, head, heart, and hands. And yet, the judgment comes based on the hands. But the hands will do nothing worthy of good judgment unless your head and heart, by faith, have accepted what God has done. And yet no one can say, faith stops at the head or the heart. It doesn't. Faith continues from the head into the heart. It is heartfelt belief that must be demonstrated. How do I know this? Because I've read James chapter 2. What good is it? My brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith and yet has no deeds, can such a faith save them? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. You know, kind of like Jesus just said. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and be well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, Faith by itself, if not accompanied by actions, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. No. Someone who says, you have faith, I have deeds. The Pharisee says, you have faith, I have deeds. The Pharisee says, look at my deeds. Look at the things I've done. I filled three boxes. I put stuff in the back boxes. I gave stuff for the homeless bags. Look at my deeds. You and your faith, your heartfelt belief. You have faith. I have deeds. James says, show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by my deeds. Faith and deeds go hand in hand, and that's because faith involves belief, trust, and loving obedience. If you claim to believe in your heart, but you are not willing to take the step of action, I don't think you've believed in your heart. 
Now look, if you die before you ever even put that first step of action down, oh, heartfelt belief still gets you in. You're saved. Welcome to the kingdom. It's awesome. But what I'm here to tell you is if that you think it is good enough to believe, you are woefully mistaken. I know that because in chapter 2, verse 19, James says, oh, you believe there's God? One God? Good. So do the demons. Yet they shudder. An intellectual faith without a heartfelt, heartfelt commitment accomplishes nothing. C.S. Lewis describes such people as men without chests, puffed up in knowledge of the Bible, and yet sunken chested because they have no heart. They have no heartfelt belief. If you are taught to believe the truth, and yet you do not accept it in your heart, the truth does not matter. Jesus has already declared that he wants worshipers who worship in the spirit and in truth. It is not just truth. It must be the spirit. And where does the spirit reside? In the heart. It cannot be intellectual and intellectual only. It cannot be emotional and emotional only. You must believe in your heart. But if you believe in your heart, you are willing to do with your hands. And if you refuse to do with your hands, I wonder... Do you really believe in your heart? After all, Paul will say in Ephesians 2, it is by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. The preacher who says, there is nothing you can do to save yourself is exactly right. You are saved by the grace of God and that is it. And the way you access God's grace is by faith. It is by faith. And the way you initially access that justifying grace is to believe in your heart that God raised Jesus from the dead, having died on the cross for your sins. If you believe that in your heart, you are justified, filled with the Holy Spirit, and now you collaborate with him so that you can do the good works. You're not saved by works so that you could boast. If you were saved by works, you could look at somebody else and you could say, look at all the good things I did to get saved. And you could be better than somebody else. None of us is better than any of the other because none of us are in by our deeds. All of us are in by our faith. The great equalizer. All of us are, are, are saved to do good works. We are not saved by works. We are saved for works. Do you understand that? Look, look at what it says. Not by works so that no one can boast for we are God's handiwork, his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. He saved us to do the good works. It's almost as though he knew we were going to be saved. Oh, I don't know. What did Jesus say way back in Matthew 25, verse 34? Oh yeah, those who are on my right, come into the kingdom. Come and receive your inheritance. The kingdom prepared for you in advance since the creation of the world. If he knew you were getting the inheritance, which is the kingdom, since the creation of the world, therefore predating any action you've done, it is not your action that gets you in. It is your getting in that leads to these actions. You are not saved by good works. You are saved for good works. You are not saved by the things you have or have not done. You are saved 
for the good works he has prepared for you. If any of you want to sin less, good. Good. I hope we can all sin less. But if your aim is to sin less, that does not make you more like Christ. It makes you more like a Pharisee. If your aim is to be more like Christ, by collaborating with the Holy Spirit and growing in knowledge, growing in trust, growing in loving obedience, then guess what? You'll end up sinning less. It's all about the motivation. Do you want to feed those who are hungry and give a drink to those who are thirsty and clothes to those who are in need? Do you want to visit those who are in prison and infirmed? Do you want to take care of those who have the needs? Oh, you do? Great. That will not save you. That does not save you. But if you have not accepted him by faith, you can do all the works you want and it won't get you in. But likewise, if you refuse to do the works that he prepared in advance for you to do, are you really in? The good works that we do do not get us in. We were created, we were saved to do them. They serve as evidence of our being his sheep. They are not the justifying actions. They are evidence of our having been justified. So why do we do all the things that we do? Well, it's because God values my knowledge. He values my worship. He values my service. He values my, genera- my generosity. He values my family. He values my membership. He values my invitation. So I will learn and worship and serve and give. I will shepherd my family. I will expand my flock and I will expand the kingdom on his behalf because it is other people's inheritance as well, not just mine. I work and strive and toil and labor never to get a congratulations or a thank you or to be saved but because God has saved me by his grace. And I have accepted that grace by faith and there is nothing else more worthy of my time to do than to serve him. That is it. Nothing I do saves me. Just like nothing I do, no matter how sinful, separates me from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. I cannot sin my way out of his love or work my way into his grace. I can merely place my faith in his grace. And if I have then that means I'm going to work. Never to save myself, but because he saved me to do that work. So what can you do? Here's what you can do. This week, you can read the most confusing section of Jesus in the whole Bible. (laughs) Come back with all your questions. There's tons of them. I'll get 98 emails this week. Matthew 24 and 25 is weird and hard. I admit that. Read it anyway. And trust my summary of be ready. Okay? Then I want you to memorize Matthew 25, 31 through 33. I want you to memorize the section where Jesus says, the son of man will come and he will call his elect and he will blast. Come with the blast of trumpet. I want you to look at those words and memorize them because he's coming. And then I want you to contemplate your obedience and what prompts it. You guys all do good stuff. I see you. You're here. You're clearly obedient. Are you obedient out of fear? Are you obedient out of obligation? Or are you obedient because you love him and he has saved you to do the things? There are lots of us who do the things because we're afraid or because we think he died for us. The least I can do is live for him. Yeah, okay. There's a better way though. You placed your faith in him? Great. You know what that means? That means you've been saved. 
and he saved you to do a lot of great works. You don't have to do them out of fear. Fear is only the beginning, not the end. Love casts out fear, says James chapter 4. Don't obey out of obligation. Obey out of love. Obey out of love. I want you to fill those boxes out of love. I want you to fill those boxes out of love. I want you to help those people out of love. I want you to grow and come and study out of love. I want you to sing and worship and be effusive in your life because of love. I want you to give everything you have, time, money, effort, talent, energy, because of love. I want you to lead your little kids and your wives because of love. I want you to tell people about this place because of love. And I want you to tell people about his love because of love. What's your role in salvation? It's just to show that it worked. So here's how I'd love for you to pray this week. Yahweh, I love you, but don't just take my word for it. See it in my actions. I like to end all my prayers this way because if I don't remind myself to show him in my actions, I love the head stuff, and that can become what I focus on. If all I do is focus on head stuff, that's ridiculous. It's heartfelt belief, not just head belief, that leads to loving obedience. Would you stand with me? We're going to pray.